The scripture reading is found in your bulletins on beginning on page 8. Will you please join me first in a prayer that God will open our hearts to receive his word. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, in your light we see light. Illumine our hearts that we may see the glory of your majesty and your power. Refresh us, convict us, challenge us, renew us, we pray. We ask your blessing on us as we listen and on Pastor Mike as he proclaims your word. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Creator and our Redeemer. Amen. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and every animal, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the, when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat of the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning of human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Abound on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And every living creature that is with you, 
the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that I is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. In case anyone would like a copy of the manuscript, our sister Sylvia has them. Get her attention as she passes by. Dear friends, of Jesus Christ. Our story doesn't start where we started this morning. We're jumping into the book of Genesis in the middle of the story, but it's a pivotal moment that we've come to this morning. The story takes place immediately after the destruction that God sent upon the earth as a judgment for human wickedness. As Jim pointed out last week, this is a moment of new or renewed creation. This is a new start, not just for the human race, but for the whole earth. We hear God's words, and those words echo God's original blessing on the creation. Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living creature that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. But if you keep in mind the larger narrative of the book of Genesis, as it has unfolded so far, you realize that this is not a light moment. There is tension in this compressed narrative, and we need to slow down our reading of those four verses that contain the actual narrative action in the story. Because the first time God sent human beings into His creation, it didn't go so well. God gave them instructions which they disobeyed, and as a result, God's blessing became God's curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. What's going to happen this time? The first time God told human beings to be fruitful, they were fruitful, but the firstborn child murdered his younger brother, and again a curse descended. 
what's going to happen this time. And the last time humanity multiplied the earth, they filled the earth not only with human beings and human culture, but it was a culture of human wickedness. So much wickedness that God sent a flood to destroy every living thing. Human presence in the world doesn't turn out to be all that good for the world. What's going to happen this time? The narrative is simple and straightforward. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. But that question hangs over the narrative. What's going to happen? This time, if this were a movie, I wonder what kind of music should be playing. As I didn't see Darren Aronofsky's version of Noah, I don't know if this scene's even in it. I decided not to watch it. But what, if you could compose the music, would it be light and airy with lilting flutes? Would it be majestic and, and victorious with the sustained swelling of horns and crashing cymbals, or would there be an ominous tremolo from the violins rising and dark undercurrents rumbling among the bases? Are we heading for a blessing or a curse? The narrative doesn't let the detention stay too long. We take a hopeful turn in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. But there's still some uncertainty at this point. Will Noah's sacrifice be accepted like Abel's, or will it be rejected like Cain's? Will God look with favor on this last preserved remnant of the human race? And then, of course, the tension that has been building in the story breaks. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. So in the end, there is a beautiful and blessed hope that rings out from the story of Noah and the ark as life again fills the earth. God will never again curse the ground because of humanity. God will never again destroy every living creature. And God speaks a beautiful and blessed promise, which we get to hear and which we'll get to sing after the sermon. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. But as beautiful as that is, this is not just a nice little Sunday school level story, not to disparage Sunday school, but you don't get to get into things very deeply when you're in eagles and doves, although sometimes kids surprise you. But this story is complex. It demands and deserves a closer reading. I, I've tried to explore with you some of the tensions that are built into the narrative, but there's even more to this story. On the surface, this story goes like this. The first thing Noah did when he came out of the ark, was to offer a sacrifice. And God was pleased with Noah and accepted his sacrifice. And God was so moved by that sacrifice that he entered into an everlasting covenant with Noah and extended that covenant to the whole earth. That's a possible reading of this text, but it's what I would call a naive and rather superficial 
reading. And you can push that until it's almost absurdly sentimental. God simply couldn't bear the thought of missing out on the aroma of sacrifices ever again. So that he promised never again to do what he did. And that's why God made a covenant with Noah. There are a couple of problems with that simple reading. First of all, I don't want to take anything away from Noah. His sacrifice was good. And God did accept it as good. It was an act of love and it was an act of faith. Noah took some of the very few possessions he had. I think maybe Micah has a sense of what that's like to have not much left. Not many resources to draw on. And he sacrificed them to the Lord. He didn't give all he had, but he gave a lot of what he had left. And he had no way of replacing what he sacrificed. And his family needed those animals to live on. They were food and they were wealth. They were the resources to start life over with. But the text doesn't invite us to believe that God accepted Noah's sacrifice because Noah was good. God was not naive about the remnant of humanity that he preserved. Even in the midst of his promise never to curse again, God clearly sees what human beings are like. I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. I won't curse the ground because of humankind, even though humankind is like this. So God doesn't promise to spare Noah and his descendants because they're good. In fact, quite the opposite. He promises to spare them in spite of the fact that they're not good. So it's hard to make any simple cause and effect connection between Noah's sacrifice and the covenant God makes with Noah. And if you follow the story of Noah where we didn't follow it into the story of his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth, it won't take very long until you hear another curse ringing out into the air. But it won't come from God. It'll come from Noah himself. And it's even harder to make a naive cause and effect connection when you remember that God had already decided and had already promised to make this covenant with Noah. Even before God sent the flood, here's what God said to Noah. I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth. He let Noah in on what he was doing to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. The truth is, God intended from the beginning to save Noah and through Noah to save the human race. God intended from the beginning to bless Noah and to make this covenant with him. And that shapes how we need to read this story. There's, there's a way of reading this story that almost makes it seem as if God is learning something about the human race and just decides to accept that, the reality of us, with a sigh. I see that these human beings are even worse than I thought. That the inclination of every human heart is evil from their very youth. So I guess I'm just going to have to deal with that. From that point of view, the covenant God makes is, is sort of an act of resignation. God just decides to lower the bar for the human race. But there's a better way and a truer way to read this text. The text isn't meant to show us a creator who learns something about his broken image bearers. The text is meant to teach us his broken image bearers something about 
our Creator. God is not a God who treats us as our sins deserve. God does not desire to wipe humanity off the face of the earth or curse the ground because of us. God is a God who delights to show mercy, a God who draws our human race into a covenant embrace. And from that better point of view, we see that God didn't save Noah and God doesn't save anyone because of who Noah is or because of who they are. God saves people because of who God is, because of what God is like. And I'll take this appropriate opportunity to acknowledge that this is Reformation Sunday. And as we commemorate the Reformation, we have to think about the central ideas that the Reformers insisted on five centuries ago that they drew out of the Scriptures, the essential truths that they saw there. No one is ever saved by their good character or their good works. Everyone who is saved is saved by grace. The covenant God makes with human beings is a covenant of grace. God initiates it. God makes it possible. God offers it. God draws us into it. So there is hope of overcoming the fall. There is hope of triumph over human sinfulness, but that hope lies entirely in the gracious character, the everlasting wisdom, and the unfathomable power of God. The same God who was able to create us shows us something that I think is even more amazing, that He is able to save us. This is not and never will be a story of human beings finally learning their lesson and saying, never again to our sinful ways. All of our never agains ring hollow through the air of creation. It's on the gates of Auschwitz. Never again, ni vide plus jamais, in Yiddish and French, and I forget what other language. But how many times since then has there been genocide in the human race? And when will it happen next? This isn't a story of us saying never again. This is a story of God saying never again to the curse. And that's our hope. This passage shows us really, I think, the first radiant glimmering of God's truest, deepest characteristics, His steadfast love and His faithfulness. The Hebrew words chesed, emet, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, chesed, and, and emet, solemn, undeserved, binding, unwavering commitment that we see always attached to the name of God. Because of the Lord's great love, chesed, we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's from the book of Lamentations. It finds its way into the hymn we're going to sing in a few minutes. But you can find the proof of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's unfailing grace on every page of Scripture and in every verse of this morning's passage. And if you think about it, there isn't really that much action in the story we read of the 25 verses we read, only four of them contain any action. The rest is all speech. It's God speaking to Noah, God speaking in his own heart. But the words explain the action. God speaks four times in this passage, and I just kind of want to end by reliving this narrative through the speaking. 
showing you how it lines up with the narrative so far in the book of Genesis. Because here's what I notice. In all of these speeches, they're echoing the previous speaking encounters, interactions between God and the human race. The first encounter between God and humanity is creation, where God blesses us and tells us to be fruitful and multiply. And Genesis 8.15, the first words we heard this morning echo that. God's first speech, go out of the ark, Take the animals, enter the creation, be fruitful, and multiply. The second speaking encounter between God and humanity is after the fall, where God curses the serpent, curses the woman, curses the man, and curses the ground because of the man. But here in this passage, in the second speech, the end of chapter 8, God reverses that. Never again will I curse the ground because of a human being. The third speaking encounter is between Cain and God, where even in the midst of pronouncing judgment on Cain for murdering his brother, God protects Cain from other people with the powerful threat of retributive justice. If anyone harms Cain, God says, whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. But in the third speech of this morning's story, it's kind of the, the complicated one, the first half of chapter 9. But God tempers that threat of sevenfold vengeance with a more equitable justice of one-for-one one punishment, moving towards the so-called lex talionis, where the punishment never exceeds the crime. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human being, that person's blood will be shed. If you're against capital punishment, you find that a troubling verse, but understand historically that this is a powerful limitation of our, of our wickedness and our thirst for revenge. And in the fourth speaking encounter in the book of Genesis between God and human beings, that's where God tells Noah that he's going to wipe everything out. But here in Genesis 9, the fourth and longest speech of this morning's passage God makes a solemn covenant, reiterating that word covenant in each of the seven sentences he speaks. And there's a formal structure to this in Hebrew. Anytime you see something repeated seven times, put that in boldface type. Let that sink deeply into your heart and mind. God promises over and over that I am binding myself together in a covenant relationship. I will never again... Send a flood to destroy the earth. Now, when the clouds gather, God will make a rainbow appear as the sign of this covenant of grace, of his ever-renewing mercies towards the human race. And the rest of human history plays out under that rainbow and in the light of those promises. God gives the promise and the sign of the covenant. Those are the essential elements of a sacrament, by the way something that you can see and something that you can hear and remember. Well, we know much more about these things now, of course. I apologize, the manuscript isn't really fleshed out, but you'll follow me all right. We know about a much greater sacrifice now, one that really is the basis of our acceptance with God, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God made the one who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our hope of overcoming sin. That's the new and better covenant that this covenant with Noah just 
barely begins to sketch out. But now we know much more about this covenant of grace. And as we stand in the covenant of grace made in the blood of Jesus Christ, we need to embody that. That's the thing about God's covenant and us. We don't cause it. We're never worthy of it. But we're, we're invited to live up to it and embody the power that it confers on us. So we need to embody the possibilities that Jesus has opened up for us. First, we should have confidence based on not who we are and not what we can do, but who God is and what God has done. Based on God's mercy, now demonstrated more clearly in Jesus Christ, we have assurance. We are accepted in the beloved. We don't have to have anxiety about whether God will accept us. And you know, of all the things John Calvin cared about, I think he's one of our, our seminal theologians of the Reformation. Calvin's main interest was pastoral. His problem with the Catholic Church wasn't just some inaccuracies in its theology. His problem with Catholicism was that it never left anyone in peace. It never gave anyone the ability to stand firmly in the grace of God. What Calvin wanted to offer the saints of God was what he called repose. You can rest. Noah's name, by the way, means rest. Second, our posture towards the world should reflect God's posture. Towards the creation, we should exercise love and care. We should exercise God's desire to preserve His creation and His creatures and live back into that original mandate of caring for the earth, serving it, and keeping it. And towards other people, no matter how far they may have wandered from God, perhaps maybe just slightly farther than us, maybe not even, but we should always have compassion and patience towards other people. Pray for them. That's part of being a priest in creation, that you pray for the people that have wandered far from God. And third, I want to make this point that I hope I can flesh out sometime in the future, but this text lends itself to being reshaped by the Great Commission. When God says to Noah, go out from the ark, to me, that, that lines up very well with Jesus saying to his disciples, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The waters of the flood become the waters of baptism. And to the covenant with Noah, God adds many promises. To the Great Commission, Jesus adds one enduring promise that we need to hold on to and embody and embrace. I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord.